0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to uh, John uh, chapter 4 for a time of study in God's Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of John, and as we continue in our study of this book, we come this morning to John 4, verse 20, and my goal this morning is to, uh, for us to work through verses 20 through uh, 26. Uh, And the title of the message is Straight Talk from Jesus About Worship. Straight Talk from Jesus About uh, Worship. Some of you, uh, I would imagine, have heard of David Foster Wallace. Uh, He was by no means a Christian nor even religious, but he was a brilliant thinker and a brilliant observer of the human condition and a great novelist. Uh, He had kind of an eccentric writing style. In one of his novels, uh, he has a sentence that's over a thousand words long. Uh, But in September of 2008, David Foster Wallace committed suicide by hanging himself at the age of 46. Uh, Almost a decade ago, uh, my wife and I and a couple of our children Uh, gathered around and listened to a commencement address that he delivered at Kenyon College back in 2005. And amazingly, uh, in his address, he brought up the subject of worship as he spoke to this graduating class of largely secular students. And I want to read to you from just a portion of what he says in his Address And as I read these words to you, I want you to keep in mind that these words are coming from the lips of a non-religious person approximately three years prior to the awful moment when he would bring his own life to an end. In his speech, he said these words, In the day-to-day trenches of life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things... If they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual attractiveness, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they're unconscious. They are default settings. Unquote. David Foster Wallace is making some good points here. Worship is the default setting of the human condition, right? Romans 1 teaches us this. And wherever you go to tap meaning in life, that's what you worship. So you don't really get a choice in the matter of whether or not you're going to be a worshiper. The only choice you get is what you will worship. You literally can wake up in the morning, whether you're a Christian or not, you can wake up in the morning every day and look at yourself in the mirror and say, my name is so-and-so and I am a worshiper. What will I worship today and how? Well, I go about doing that worship. So being the worshipers that all of you are, you'll be happy to know that our passage today is all about the subject of worship. In fact, in just verses 20 through 24 alone, we see a form of the word worship 10 times, 10 times, which you are welcome to underline at your leisure. This passage is, as we're going to see, all about worship, and it is here where we find Jesus teaching a woman on this topic that is so important for her and for all of us. Before we get to these words, though, uh, let's first take a little bit of time to review where we are in this amazing story. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, Jesus finds himself sitting By a well near the city of Sychar. While he is sitting there, a woman of Samaria approaches the well to draw water, and Jesus speaks to her, and he asks her for a drink. She expresses surprise that he, being a Jew, would speak to her, a Samaritan woman. Jesus then says to her in verse 10 of John 4, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him And he would have given you living water. The woman hears these words from Jesus, and frankly, she's unimpressed. In verses 11 and 12, she says, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Well, Jesus replies to her in verses 13 and 14, saying to her, look at the text, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is an amazing promise from Jesus to this woman, and this woman hears these words from Jesus, and she says in verse 15, "'Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw.'" Jesus responds to her in verse 16 by saying, "'Go, call your husband and come here.'" And upon hearing this instruction from Jesus, verse 17, the woman answered and said, "'I have no husband.'" And in reply, Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Verse 19 tells us that the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And in saying these words to Jesus, this woman is admitting that Jesus is completely right about her. Essentially, she is saying, sir, given what you have just said about me, I perceive that you are a prophet of God with supernatural knowledge about me. In fact, I believe you are the prophet like Moses whom God promised in Deuteronomy 18, 18, that he would send one day. Over the past two Sundays, we've unpacked all of these things up to this point of the narrative. And this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 20, where the woman then says to Jesus, look at the text, in verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say, that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The mountain that she is speaking about here is Mount Gerizim, which was in full view of this woman and Jesus where they were right now having this conversation. And this woman is correct when she says, Our fathers worshiped in this mountain, you can write some of these references down. In Genesis 12:7, Abraham had built an altar to Jehovah in this very region of the promised land. In Genesis 33:20, Jacob did the same. We learn in Deuteronomy 11 verse 29 that when the Israelites entered the promised land, God ordered that Mount Gerizim, this mountain, be the place where the blessings of the covenant would be spoken. In Deuteronomy 27:12, Moses commanded the Levitical priest to stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Beyond these factual things that we find in scripture, the Samaritans as a people believe that Mount Gerizim was the place where Abraham offered Isaac. They were wrong in that, but that's what they believed. And they also believed this was where Abraham met up with Melchizedek in the book of Genesis. In the Samaritan version of Deuteronomy 27 verse 4 and following, they have God commanding an altar to be set up on Mount Gerizim. So it's not surprising that The Samaritans in the 5th century B.C. built a temple on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, and you can understand their fury at the Jews for destroying that temple in 128 B.C. And you can also understand why it was that even after that temple was destroyed, the Samaritans continued to come to Mount Gerizim And offer sacrifices because the mountain was that sacred to them. So in the mind of this woman, she's speaking truth when she says to Jesus, our fathers worship in this mountain. But then look at what she says next while speaking to Jesus. Essentially, she says, and and yet you people, you Jews, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Well, the reason that the Jews insisted on Jerusalem as the place for worship was because of passages like 2 Chronicles 6, 6, where God specifically appoints Jerusalem as the place where the temple was to be built. And because God tells Solomon the same thing in 2 Chronicles 7, 12, and because of passages like Psalm 78, 68, where the psalmist states, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that God chose Mount Zion in Jerusalem as the specific spot for his sanctuary. Yet, unfortunately, these passages that I just referred to meant nothing to the Samaritans because they rejected these books of the Bible and only accepted the first five books of our Old Testament So this Samaritan woman says to Jesus in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And this woman doesn't go on to say these words, but her implied question is, so what do you think, sir? What do you say regarding this matter? Does that make sense? Now some interpreters think that this woman is trying to, uh, one commentator described it as a ruse, where she's trying to change the subject on Jesus. Jesus has just brought up the delicate matter of her five failed marriages and the fact that she's now living with a man who is not her husband. And these interpreters think that this woman is now saying, hey, since we're on the topic, of my failed marriages and my present living in sin, what's your opinion on this debatable matter between Jews and Samaritans about where to worship? We all know what it's like to have someone try to change the subject on us when we're witnessing to them, right? But I don't think this is what this woman is doing here at all. Think about it, guys. Jesus has just told her everything she's ever done. That's what she's going to go telling people a little bit later in this chapter. And she's just acknowledged him as the prophet like Moses that God promised in Deuteronomy that he would be sending in a future day. Do you really think that she's thinking right now that she can pull a fast one on him and throw up a distraction? I don't personally think so. I think this woman bringing up this topic at this point of the conversation is most appropriate partly because worship has everything to do with the thirst of one's soul which is the topic jesus has been speaking to her about the act of confessing thirst and then coming to something to get that thirst satisfied, and then extolling and praising the thing that satisfies your thirst, that's worship. Read through the Psalms and you will discover how true this is. The language of craving, satisfaction, and praise is found throughout the Psalms. In Psalm 42.1, the psalmist is worshiping God, and he confesses that his soul pants for God like the deer pants for the water brooks. And in Psalm 63.5, the psalmist professes that his soul is satisfied in God, and he's giving praise to God for this satisfaction that he is finding in God. Such language is found throughout the Psalms, demonstrating the profound connection between worship and the satisfaction of one's thirst, the thirst of his soul in God. As for this Samaritan woman, she has spent her life worshiping men and relationships with men. So I think it's actually wonderful progress that she is now even thinking about worshiping God and wanting to talk about that. Another reason I think it's appropriate for this woman to bring up this topic of worship is because this topic is relevant to her getting right with God. Jesus has just brought up this woman's sin issues, and the reminder of her sins, no doubt, stings her conscience and inclines her to Think about getting right with God, but where should she go to get right with God? Where should she go to offer her sacrifice and to make things right with God? Should she go to Mount Gerizim in Samaria or to the temple in Jerusalem? If Jesus tells this woman that one can only worship God at the temple in Jerusalem, then that would be really bad news for this woman. It would mean that she's without hope because Samaritans could not enter the temple. They could not enter into the court of Israel and offer sacrifices the way that the Jews could because the Samaritans were viewed as foreigners. So what this woman brings up in verse 20 was a great personal consequence to her at least in part, she's asking Jesus, where should I go to get right with God? Jerusalem or Gerizim? And she hopes that the answer is Gerizim because if it's the Jerusalem temple, then she's really in a jam. This is such an important topic that this woman is bringing up to Jesus that, guess what? Jesus goes with her to this issue. And speaks about it at length. He doesn't rebuke her for trying to change the subject. He says, let's talk about that. And I think the fact that Jesus goes there with her and begins to talk about this matter of worship indicates that he very much approved of the topic that she introduces here in verse 20. And in verse 21, Jesus essentially begins his reply to this woman by saying, woman, believe me. This is a command. This is an imperative wherein Jesus is instructing this woman to believe everything that he is about to say as he teaches her on this subject of worship. By saying the words, believe me, Jesus is establishing right off the bat that the first step to understanding worship involves a commitment to listen to Jesus and believe whatever he says on the topic. And from this point forward in the text, what we find in this passage, as you see on your notes, are seven truth claims that Jesus makes to direct the Samaritan woman toward the true worship of God. Seven truth claims That Jesus makes to direct this woman toward the true worship of God. And the first is this. Let's word it this way. An hour comes, here's his truth claim, an hour comes when you Samaritans will worship the Father neither in Gerizim nor Jerusalem. Observe what Jesus does in verse 21. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, An hour is coming, so this is present tense, an hour is right now approaching, when neither in this mountain, which is speaking of Mount Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Right off the bat, this is the last thing that this woman expected Jesus to say. With Jesus being a Jew, she would have expected Him to say, Jerusalem is the real place for worship. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And you might want to mark that word, you. The you here is plural, meaning you Samaritans. So Jesus is saying an hour is approaching when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you Samaritans be worshiping the Father. So Jesus is really making two promises to this woman at this point. First of all, he's promising her that an hour is approaching when this woman and her fellow Samaritans will genuinely worship the Father. And secondly, he is promising her that when she and her fellow Samaritans are worshiping the Father, it won't be on Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem. It won't be tied to either of these two geographical locations. And notice in verse 21 how Jesus uses the word Father to describe the object of their worship when this hour comes. Such language indicates that God will be a father to these Samaritans and that they will worship him as literal children of God worshiping their heavenly father. God will save them and make them part of his family and they will begin to relate to him the way children would relate to their father and they will worship him as father. This is a wonderfully gracious and stunning promise from Jesus to this Samaritan woman and to her fellow Samaritans. Jesus is literally predicting that this woman and many of her fellow Samaritans will become children of God who worship the Father. In fact, that's why he's here by the well at this moment and why he's going to be sticking around in town for the next couple days as we'll see as the chapter unfolds. Now, as an aside, why would Jesus be able to say to this woman that people imminently are going to be worshiping the Father neither in Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritan temple once stood, or in Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple stood at the time? He's able to say what he's saying here because a new temple has come on the scene that people will be gathering into and worshiping God from. And you know what that new temple is? It's Jesus. In John 2, verses 19 through 21, Jesus pointed to himself as the temple. And here in this conversation, In John 4, he's promising that one day the Samaritans will gather to him and they will worship the Father from the vantage point of their position in him. And when that day comes, they will care nothing anymore about the debate that people are having between the Jerusalem temple and Mount Gerizim. This is an amazing prediction by Jesus promising something wonderful to come. But this is not where this woman and her fellow Samaritans are right now, which leads us to the second truth claim that Jesus makes to this woman in order to direct her toward the true worship of God. And let's word it this way. Number two, you Samaritans don't know what you are worshiping, but we Jews do. You Samaritans don't know what you are worshiping, but we Jews doom. Listen to what he says in verse 21. He says to her, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know. And let's stop right there. Jesus is making a blunt statement to this woman and he starts off negatively saying to her, you, you plural, meaning you Samaritans, worship what you don't know. Now, why would Jesus say this to her? Well, partly he would say this because as we've already mentioned, the Samaritans had cut themselves off from all but the first five books of God's revelation of himself in the Old Testament. And think about that, guys. You know, nowadays there are pastors who are telling Christians that they would be better off if they unhitched themselves from the Old Testament. Well, these Samaritans largely did that they had unhitched themselves from what, 34 inspired Old Testament books? And as a result, they were ignorant of many things about Jehovah and the worship of Jehovah. They cut themselves off even from the Psalter, the Psalms, which was God's inspired worship manual. So they didn't know so much about what they claimed to worship. But in verse 21, Jesus then says, we, we Jews, worship what we know. And why was this so? Well, because the truly faithful Jews were following all of God's written revelation from Genesis to Malachi. So they knew from the full scope of Old Testament revelation who it was that they were worshiping. Now, what's interesting to observe here is that this woman is bringing up the topic of where to worship, but Jesus is drawing her attention to a defect in the Samaritan's knowledge regarding whom they worship, which is in his mind, the far more important issue. He's saying to this woman, your problem right now is that you and your people don't know who you are worshiping because you're not listening to all of God's revelation. You're rejecting vast portions of his written truth. And by the way, what Jesus says here is true for everyone. To worship God rightly, you must know him. And to know Him, you must learn about Him from the Bible's revelation of Him, from all of the Old Testament and from all of the new. As for Jesus' speaking style here, I'm struck by Jesus' willingness to look at this woman and all Samaritans that she represents and (laughs) bluntly say, you people don't know what you worship but we do. Imagine someone talking this way on a talk show today. They would be called arrogant, but what Jesus is doing here is not arrogance at all. It's fact, and you and I as Christians need to be just as decisive as we speak to people on topics like worship. Not all worship is equal not all religions are equally valid and we render no service to our friends who are caught up in a false religion or in false teaching when we say to them well you worship the same god that i worship some time ago the president of the united states was being interviewed on an arab television station and he made this statement, quote, first of all, I believe in almighty God and I believe that all the world, whether they be Muslim, Christian, or any other religion, prays to the same God. That's what I believe. I believe that Islam is a great religion that preaches peace, unquote. These are the words of our president, or I should say our former president, George W. Bush, in 2003. And I know he didn't get that perspective from Jesus. Contrast what Bush said in that interview to what Jesus says in our passage. He looks straight at this woman whom he loves and he says to her, you people don't know what you worship. We do. There's so much to love about Christ's example in this conversation with this woman. In the span of one conversation, he models vulnerability and courtesy, and love, and here we see blunt truth speaking on the topic of worship. Let's be like him and speak with both grace and truth to others, and let's also let his words guide us in our worship too. There's a third truth claim that Jesus makes to this woman in order to direct her into the true worship of God. And let's say it this way at the center of true worship is salvation, which comes from the Jews. At the center of true worship is salvation, which comes from the Jews. Observe how Jesus ends his statement of verse 22 saying, For salvation is from the Jews. It should not be lost on us that in a conversation about worship, Jesus brings up the matter of salvation. Essentially, Jesus is saying, we Jews know what we worship because at the center of our belief system is the certain knowledge that salvation is needed. We know from our scriptures what people need to be saved from. We know that this salvation is coming from God, and we know that it will come from the Jews as foretold in the full body of Old Testament revelation. History tells us that the Samaritans were waiting for a Messiah-like figure to come, but they didn't really like to think of him as a savior. They thought of him more as a prophet-like figure who would teach them and restore worship on Mount Gerizim. The Jewish scriptures, however, depicted the coming one as a savior who will die as a guilt offering for the sins of the people and be a savior from sin. Just read Isaiah 53, which the Samaritans rejected and did not view as inspired revelation from God where this is taught. We learn from Jesus' words in verse 22 that at the core of true worship is a necessary salvation that God provides through a Jewish Messiah foretold in Scripture and that Messiah is Jesus. Any worship that does not have, at its core, a theology of salvation from sin through Jesus is not true worship. John Shelby Spong uh, was a bishop in the Episcopal Church, yet though he was a bishop, he denied the virgin birth of Christ, the physical resurrection of Christ from the dead, and so many other doctrines that are so critical to our salvation at a lecture he delivered back in 2010 he said these words to his audience we don't need a savior if jesus died for your sins you are one wretched human being and i don't think that's good news unquote but the bible teaches that we are wretched sinners apart from Christ. And the Bible teaches that Jesus did die for our sins when we were helpless to save ourselves. And Jesus here in this passage is saying, there is a needed salvation. And this salvation will come from the Jews. And this salvation is very much connected to what the true worship of God is all about. True worshipers of God are only those who have embraced this salvation and been saved by God through Christ. And the truth is, Jesus is saying there's going to be plenty of people happy to worship God truly in the way I'm describing here. And this actually leads to the fourth truth claim that Jesus makes to this Samaritan woman in order to direct her into the true worship of God. Number four. An hour comes when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. An hour comes when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This is precisely what Jesus says in verse 23, where he speaks to this woman and he says these words. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. As you look at Jesus' statement here, notice how he speaks of true worshipers. This language implies that everyone is a worshiper in one of two categories. There are false worshipers who worship anything but the Father, and then there are the true worshipers who worship the Father and worship Him rightly. Evidently, not all worship is equally valid, and not all worshipers are equal. There are true worshipers and false ones. As for the true worshipers, Jesus says the true worshipers will worship the Father. Anyone who is not a child of God, worshiping God as his Father and giving glory and praise to him, is not a true worshiper. And if you go back to John 1, uh, verses 10 through 12, you learn that how you become a child of God is by believing in the name of Jesus. Jesus then says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. In other words, they will worship the Father with a worship that engages their spirit and comes from their heart. It will not merely be external ritual they will have been brought to life by god and saved by him and they will have received the holy spirit and then will worship the father with the worship that is wrought by the spirit of god within them jesus goes on to say in verse 23 true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and what and truth In other words, they will worship the Father in a way that is hitched to the truth of all of God's written revelation, all of it, not just the first five books of it. Also, their worship will be shaped by the revelation of God through Jesus, who is the truth, the ultimate truth. Any worship of God that is not centered on Jesus Christ as the ultimate truth cannot be characterized As worshiping the Father in truth. We would also say that worshiping the Father in truth also embodies a willingness to worship God without hypocrisy and guile. A willingness to, it's worshiping God with a willingness to speak truthfully about ourselves and our sin and confessing our sins and obtaining from God the grace and the mercy that he delights to give. And here in this passage, Jesus is saying that such a day is coming when people will worship the Father in spirit and truth in all of these ways. And it's not just something that's going to happen at some point in the future. Jesus says the hour is coming and now is what he's saying is that the moment for the fulfillment of what he's promising begins now in this woman's life and in the lives of those who live in her town. This is precisely why Jesus is here at this moment, having this conversation with this woman. And by the time this chapter is concluded, We're going to find this woman and others in her town, all of them Samaritans, becoming worshipers of the Father in spirit and in truth, children of God, and now worshiping their Father. Jesus knows that this will happen, and he goes on record predicting this outcome, because it's what he's here to do in John 4. Now, why will this great outcome come to pass? Where people are worshiping the Father in spirit and truth in this way. This leads us to the fifth truth claim that Jesus makes to this woman in his attempt to direct her into the true worship of God. Number five, the Father is seeking people to be his worshipers in spirit and truth. The Father is seeking people. Observe how he finishes his statement in verse 23. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. From Jesus' words here, we learn that the Father is the seeker who seeks worshipers. And this is a saving kind of seeking. God sets his sovereign love upon persons and seeks them out. And he brings them to life and makes them his children, and he makes them into worshipers of him. God doesn't just accept true worshipers. He makes them. That's what Jesus is in the business of doing right now in Samaria. God the Father, through him, is seeking this woman and her fellow Samaritans to be his worshipers. In Scripture, we have in several places statements to the effect that no one on their own seeks after God. No one of their own volition decides to seek after the true God. But here, Jesus teaches us that God is the seeker. God is the one who seeks after people And he seeks people to be his worshipers. There are some churches today that call themselves seeker-sensitive, right? Seeker-sensitive churches. The kind of churches that Christ wants are churches that are sensitive to the ultimate seeker who is God. Amen? Amen. He is the true seeker, and we here at Cornerstone want to be a church that is sensitive to Him as He seeks out people to make them worshipers of Him through Christ. Now, being this kind of church imposes a heavy burden on us, a thrilling burden. It means that we must be like our Heavenly Father and seek out sinners and invite them to join us in worshiping the one true God through Christ, trusting that God is seeking them and pleading with them through us as we seek to evangelize them. And keep in mind that when we do this type of thing, we're not coming to people and asking them to start being worshipers we actually try to help them see that they already are worshipers. They are already worshiping something or many things, and we're simply calling them away from their idolatries that are eating them alive and inviting them to join us in worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth through Jesus, who is the fountain of living water. Now, why must we insist that people worship God in spirit and truth in this way? We find out in the sixth truth claim that Jesus makes to this woman. And we can word it this way, because God is spirit. worshipers of God must worship him in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit, worshipers of God must worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, earlier Jesus said true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. But in verse 24, He advances the thought a little bit further saying, look at the text, verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. Now, first of all, in saying that God is spirit, Jesus is saying that God is a spirit being, not bound by time and space and the limits of physical existence. He is an eternal, life-giving spirit. And being spirit, God can only be known by those to whom he has revealed himself to through Christ. God cannot be confined to an earthly temple in some geographical location, whether that be on Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem. And even Solomon himself, who built the first temple, gave voice to this reality at the dedication of the Jerusalem temple, basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing here, what are we doing building a house for you, God? the heavens and the heavens of the heavens cannot contain you how much less this temple that we have built that's from 1 kings 8:27 now because god is spirit in this way notice how jesus says that those who worship him must they must worship him in spirit and truth. Underline that word must. This is the language of imperative, the language of necessity. God doesn't leave it to us to make our own choices about worship. Anyone who worships God must worship him in a particular way that is to his liking. We must worship him in spirit and truth. We must worship him through the power of his spirit, worshiping him from the heart having been brought to life through His Spirit. And we must worship God with genuineness and with honesty according to the truth of God's written revelation and the revelation of Himself in Jesus, who is the way and the truth, the ultimate truth. This teaching from Jesus informs us that it is not up to us to define our own ways to worship. God determines that. And it is simply our job to abide by what he desires in order for us to be pleasing to him. And I think this teaching from Jesus should serve to reorient our perspective a bit, even as Christians. We... uh, We can be very discerning connoisseurs of worship, can't we? And we naturally tend to evaluate worship based on whether it fits with what we want or don't want. And we can be quite picky in our demands sometimes. When we show up at a church, we ask ourselves, is this worship acceptable to me? Does it satisfy me? Does it give me what I want to get out of worship? And in such moments, we need to at least stop and remember that worship is not about us. We need to remember that we are not the audience of worship. We are the choir and God is the audience of the worship that we're rendering to him even in this assembly this morning. And our goal fundamentally should be to satisfy him by worshiping him in the way that he wants us to worship him. And in this passage, Christ is telling us the kind of worship that satisfies God. And you know what? It's not a list of a 100 items. It's very simple. We must worship God as Father. Our worship must be centered on the salvation that He provides us through Christ. We must worship God in spirit, and we must worship Him in truth. That's it. That's what He wants from us in all of our lives. And we know this because Jesus is teaching us this here. Which leads us to the final truth claim that Jesus makes to this woman in order to direct her into the true worshipers of God. And let's, I, I know of no better way to word this than this. Jesus essentially says to this woman, I am Jehovah Messiah, your worship director. Observe what happens in verse 25. The woman said to him, after hearing Jesus say these things, she said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Now, at first blush, uh, one might be tempted to read this woman's response here in verse 25 and wonder if she's dismissing Jesus and kind of waving him off. Almost as if she's saying, well, I hear what you're saying, but when Messiah comes, he'll explain all of this, and I'll just wait for him to come and explain it all when he gets here. There are some interpreters that actually interpret the woman in this way. But again, we need to remember that this woman has already been shaken to the core by Jesus' supernatural knowledge of her. She's already perceived that he is the prophet like Moses whom God promised he would send. And now she's realizing that this person, Jesus, is talking pretty Messiah-like as he speaks to her with such authority on the topic of worship, speaking about a staggering new era in worship that is right now about to be ushered in. And he's speaking with such confidence about the kind of worshipers that the Father is seeking. And so she's realizing that Jesus is engaging in Messiah talk. As Carl Laney, the commentator, says, the Samaritans expected that when the Messiah came, he would come as a teacher and as a restorer of true worship. And this is exactly the way Jesus is talking here in a way that takes this woman's breath away. So this woman says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us and then this isn't said, but the vibe is kind of like you're doing right now. And her implied question, which she would dare not ask, is, that wouldn't be you, would it? This woman is making the statement in the hopes of learning a little more about Jesus, who's talking to her, and her highest hopes are realized in his response. Observe his reply to this woman in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one who explains all things. I am the one through whom salvation comes. I am the one who has the right to tell you how to worship, which means that I am your worship director, ma'am. I who speak to you am he, Jesus says. I should point out that what we see here in Jesus' statement in verse 26 is the first of several I am statements uttered by Jesus in the Gospel of John. In Exodus 3, God revealed himself to Moses, saying that his name was, I am who I am. And here Jesus is literally saying to this woman, here's how this reads, the one speaking to you, I am. The word he is not even in the Greek text. It's supplied by most translators. He's saying, the one speaking to you, I am. In this statement, Jesus is not merely telling this woman that he is the Messiah. He's telling her that he is the great I am, that he is Jehovah God. And not that she would have understood all of that in this moment, but as we listen in As Jesus is speaking to her, we almost are tempted to laugh at the fullness, to laugh with joy at the fullness of what Jesus is revealing to her, a fullness that she would only later come to fully understand. But how blessed is this Samaritan woman in this moment with such a sinful, broken history, a part of the half-breed race of Samaritans whom the Jews despised, that she would be treated to this epiphany of Jehovah God right here beside this well on an ordinary day. She came to this well alone just to get some water, and she ends up encountering the long-awaited Messiah. And at first, she sees him as a stranger, and then... She perceives him as the prophet like Moses, and now she sees him as the Messiah, as Jehovah Messiah. She is a broken sinner with a life history of many sins. She's been rejected by others, yet here is Jehovah Messiah Jesus talking to her and revealing himself to her and giving himself to her in friendship and promising her that he's going to make her a true worshiper of the Father who will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What a wonder this is. And what a wonder it is that God has revealed himself in various ways to so many of us in this room and what a wonder that Jesus stands ready to reveal himself to you this morning if you will simply have the eyes and the ears to perceive him. We're going to stop here in the narrative for today. And uh, you may be dying to know what this woman does once Jesus says, I am he. Um, but we'll learn that in future weeks. This is just an amazing, riveting chapter. Uh, but let me just leave you with a couple uh, closing thoughts um, here. Uh, you'll notice in this passage that twice, Jesus speaks of an hour that is coming when people will worship God in a new way. And if you keep on reading John's gospel, you will find that the hour that ultimately he is speaking of is the hour of his death on the cross. So for Jesus to use this expression here in talking to this woman indicates that it is through the cross of Christ that God transforms people into worshipers of him. Before the gospel of John is over, Jesus is going to lay down his life and he's going to be raised from the dead in order to make worshipers of the Father. In fact, when Thomas, his disciple, is going to see Jesus for the first time after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's going to exclaim, my Lord and my God. No one needed to tell him to do that. That's just worship coming from his heart in the full arrival of the hour of Christ's death and his resurrection. David Foster Wallace warns us that whatever we worship is going to eat us alive. And in many cases, that's so true. But Jesus won't eat you alive if you worship him. He died and came back to life. And if you believe in him, he will quench your thirst He will satisfy you, and he will leave you literally with living water springing forth from the deepest parts of your being, springing forth within you unto eternal life, so much so that a freight train couldn't stop you from worshiping God in spirit and in truth. So I have no doubt that even this morning God walks through this room in this moment, seeking worshipers of him. If you have never believed in Jesus Christ, I would plead with you to let yourself be found by the Father this morning and let him draw you to his Son, Jesus. Believe in Jesus Christ and receive the salvation that he died to give to you. And let him make you into a worshiper of God. And you will find that not only will Jesus never eat you alive, but he will make you alive like you have never been before. He will give you life and give you life even more abundantly. Come to him today. Let's bow our heads together. Lord God, we just stand in awe of the greatness of Jesus. And your greatness, Father, we stand in awe of the staggering greatness of you, the triune God, God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit, help us, Lord, to worship you in all of life, to always be facing ever toward you, satisfying our soul's thirst in you, and giving to you the homage and the praise that you deserve for who you are and how you so satisfy our thirst through Christ. If there's any here today, Lord, who have never yet believed in Christ, I just pray that you would look upon them with your mercy and grace just like you did us and that you would touch their hearts and give them life and give them the ability to see the beauty of Christ. And of the worship of him, may they so see the beauty of Christ this morning that they would consider it an intolerable suffering to live one more minute apart from him. None of us can accomplish that feat in our own hearts. We can't accomplish this feat in the hearts of anyone else, but you can. And we ask you to do this miracle and each heart here this morning so that we might be a people who worship the Father in spirit and truth, having been saved with the salvation that you, Father, provide us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We give ourselves to you. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said,